This morning, I don't have any notes, and it was intentional. You remember a month or two ago, I simply forgot to print my notes off, and I had to run home and print them off while you had some midrash here. That was fun. But today, uh, when I was preparing for Shabbat, um, I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, don't, don't make any notes. I just want you to shoot from the hip today. So we're shooting from the hip today, and it's going to be fun. So let's look, at, um, let's look at this story in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 1st. Um, maybe we can draw it out. That would be fun. Just to get an idea of it after having read it. <clears throat> so, here we have... Um, tradition says that when Yeshua took His inner circle up on a high mountain, He took them on Mount Tabor. In Hebrew we say Har Tavor. So, I'll, I'll draw Har Tavor here. I don't know that that's really the mountain, but you know, it could be. I've been on Har Tavor when I hiked across the Galil. It's beautiful, gorgeous view. It is very high. And um, this is kind of where, it's, where it is. So we'll draw the big mountain here. Hi, Tears. I thought you'd like this part. So there's Har Tavor. And um, then, then like, there's kind of this range of hills over here, kind of like this in the background. And Natsarid is in one of those. So we'll draw some little... Let's say that this is Natsarid over here. There's some little, little buildings up here. It's actually pretty high up. And um, it's not surprising that they thought they could throw Yeshua over, over the cliff to kill him in Natsarid. And then over here you have like... Um, wait, Mount Hermon, way in the background, let's say. And then, um, let's draw the skyline there. And um, then you have the, the Kinneret, right there. And then here's little Kafarnachum, um, Capernaum, where Yeshua set up his base. All right? So here's Hartivor, and we'll say that Yeshua and his guys climbed the mountain. I, I assume it was, was it, does it say explicitly it was at night, or did we just think that because he was shiny? Um, I assume it was at night. So we'll draw the moon here. It's a nice clear night. And Yeshua's up there. Um, here, we'll draw... When Tears and I like to draw from the Gospels, we like to draw Yeshua with the crown. That's how we can tell it's Him. He didn't really have a crown all the time, right? But He was the Mashiach, the King. So there's... Um, there's Yeshua. And actually the other Gospels supply a couple of details that we don't have in this one. We learn from the other Gospels, um, number one, that Yeshua was praying. He climbed the mountain to pray. And number two, that his, his inner circle fell asleep. So actually they woke up and there was the Master and He was, he was shining and uh, conversing with some guys that hadn't accompanied them up the mountain. So anyway, here's Yeshua. It says that um, Moshe... And Eliyahu appeared and they were talking with him. So here's, here's Moshe. We'll give him a really nice big beard. And um, here we'll draw him holding a, a Sefer Torah. A Torah scroll. Just so we know who Moshe is. And then, on the other, and then he was also talking with Eliyahu it says. And um, Eliyahu is a bit of a wild man here. We'll draw him with his camel skin garment. And we're gonna, we'll make his hair... Kind of radical. And he, he, he called people to repentance, so we'll give him a serious face. Alright, so there's Moshe and Eliyahu, and then here's Yeshua's three guys. One of them is still just waking up, so he's lying down. He's going, oh my, what is that? And um, here's another one of them. So that was Yaakov, Yochanan, and Shimon Kepha. Let's see, uh, Yaakov and Yochanan were brothers, so we'll give them the same hair. How is this? Yeah, they both have curly hair. And then Shimon Kepha we'll draw over here. 
All right, and it says that Yeshua was all shiny. He was all shiny. Actually, the Gospel of Luke also says that when this happened, Moshe and Eliyahu were specifically conversing with the Master about his, his soon coming departure, i.e. when he would, um, when he would um, accomplish his passion in Jerusalem. So, this is, there's the story. I guess Shimon Kefo, for whatever reason, he, uh, he suggested that he build three sukkahs for these guys. Maybe he didn't want the moment to pass. Maybe he was like, this is incredible. I don't want this to end. Maybe if we build some sukkahs, we can... We can, I don't know, we can live up here together with these guys or something. Yeah, incidentally, there is a humongous, ancient, and very, actually very architecturally gorgeous church built up on top of Mount Tabor. So, whereas Simon Peter failed in his attempt to build something there, uh, later generations did indeed build a massive edifice. And I, I visited there, it's really beautiful, but I couldn't find Moshe or Eliyahu or anybody from the Bible there, so it didn't work. But, um... So anyway, so he suggests this, and it says that a cloud covered them. So let's draw a cloud beginning to come in here. cloud is rolling in over them all. And they heard a voice out of the cloud. And it was Abba, it was the Father. And he said, This is my dear son, Shema B'Kolo. And he read, he said, Shema B'Kolo, listen to his voice. And... Um, They looked and suddenly all they could see is Yeshua. We'll just let the cloud envelop Moshe and Eliyahu. So that's the story from the Gospels. And I'll I'll give you some, some comments about that along the lines of the centrality of Yeshua and what it actually means to listen to His voice and some different ways that maybe... Oh, she can stay here. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Hi, baby. Do you want me to hold you? Yeah. Okay. And maybe some different ways, some different ways that we can shema to Yeshua's voice, and maybe some ways that we're like Shimon Kepha, that we're like Simon Peter sometimes. Um, I was reading a paper this last week by one of the main proponents of the, the, the Torah movement, really. Uh, the movement of people, uh, of God's people returning to a Torah lifestyle as Yeshua modeled it. And um, specifically, he's one of the main teachers in what you'd call the One Law Movement. So the concept that all of the Torah is for all of God's people, uh, essentially. And um, he was, um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was an interesting paper, but I noticed that his, his primary frame of reference was the Torah. So he would see our movement as the Torah movement, right? Um, he would see communities like our community as being Torah communities. Those were the terms. And, and I've encountered that pretty, pretty consistently or regularly in the Messianic uh, community. Um, you'll find different people call congregations like ours by different names. It's kind of a big question. What do we call ourselves? Um, there, there are some people in the, the Messianic Jewish community who would say, actually, communities like ours might, might best be called Judeo-Christian communities. You know, we could call ourselves Messianic Jewish, but m- most of us aren't ethnically Jewish. You know, we do have that element, but so Judeo-Christian would maybe com- communicate that. Or people would say maybe we should call ourselves Nazarenes, because the early, uh, the early Yeshua movement was called the sect of the Nazarenes. It was a sect of Judaism. Um, there, are, there are lots of names like that. That's, that whole question, I, I guess you could call it nomenclatural. You know, your nomenclature is what you call stuff, right? But let me ask you, not so much on that level, but on a personal level, who are you? If someone were to just, let's say you were just going to meet somebody, and uh, it's like, here, I'll just be like, let's say I was just going to meet you, uh, Val. 
be like, let's say we just met at, a, I don't know, I don't know, um, let's say at a party or something. And I'm like, hey, I'm Izzy. Uh, who are you? And um, what's your name? I'm okay, hey Val, good to meet you. So, who are you? You know, if you could imagine someone just being like, who are you? What would you say? What are the first things you would say to identify yourself? What are the things that come to mind? Really, you'd say that first thing at a, let's say at a party? I'm a believer in Yeshua. <laughs> well, that could very well be. Like, I mean, if that's at the core of identity, that's something that will come to mind. Um, every one of us in this room are a lot of things. If we were to identify ourselves, who am I? Or maybe you'd say, this is where I live, or this is, this is what I do for a job, or this is what I'm passionate about, or this is my cause, or um, you name it. Or maybe this is something that happened to me when I was younger that's defined me, for better or worse. Uh, there are lots of things that make us who we are that we identify ourselves as, eh? And... Uh, that's, that's a question that Yeshua was asking too. Like, I think it was last Shabbat. Remember, he was um, just traveling with his Talmudim. They were having some heart-to-hearts. And he said, so who do, who do people say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? So this whole question of who are you or who is Yeshua, it's a big question, eh? And um, uh, frankly, I, I hesitate... I, I hesitate with the suggestion that we are primarily a Torah community or a Torah movement. Now it is true that we are part of a move of restoration that is sweeping the body of Messiah, that the Holy Spirit is spearheading of people saying, you know what, we need to pick the Old Testament out of the garbage can, we need to brush the dust off, and we need to re-examine this in the light of the whole counsel of the Word of God. The things, the, many of, all of the commandments in the Old Testament that applied to Yeshua, he practiced. Paul said things like, God's commandments are holy, they're righteous, they're good. You know, Yeshua... Yeah, actually, I, I had a dream last night that I was talking with a friend of mine, and I don't know where this person is in terms of observance, uh, but um, this person said, so why do you wear tzitzit? And I said, I wear tzitzit because Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5, in the context of the Torah, that the people who are great in His kingdom are the people who do the commandments and teach others to do them. Well, this is something I'm really fired up about. I can't help but talk with people about it in my sleep even, Right? And, and so, you know, that's a big thing that we're waking up to. And so, yes, we are being restored to God's Torah. But, that is, but is that who we are? Is that our primary frame of reference? Is that the number one thing that we identify ourselves as? We are Torah people. We are a Torah movement. We're a Torah community. I would suggest that on the basis of Paul's writings to the community, Yeshua community in Ephesus, that is like our foundation... He said that we as an ecclesia, community, are founded on the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, I, I would be like, Yeshua's guys, and also the literature that they wrote. Who are the prophets? Moses, Elijah. A lot of those guys are the prophets. So yes, as a community, our foundation is the Torah and the writings of Yeshua's apostles. And then Shaul went on to say in that passage, and Yeshua is the, the cornerstone. So, uh, my personal identity is as a disciple of Yeshua. And this is something I've had to be thinking through. For a while, my, my core identity was as a Messianic Jew. And, and you know, I, I'm Jewish, and that's something that I, I have made a move to reclaim in the last decade or so. I felt prompted to do that to reclaim my Jewish identity and my heritage in that regard and to glorify God through that and to show the world uh, maybe a clear picture of who Yeshua is. 
But is that my primary identity, as a Jewish person even? And you could say, yes, well, you're Messianic, so yeah, it's all about Messiah, right? Yeah, maybe. But I think actually for a lot of Messianic Jews, it's more about me as a Messianic Jew than about Messiah. Or sometimes it's more about my Jewishness than it is even about following Yeshua. I think it's possible for that to happen. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it would just sound like nitpicking or semantics, but it actually isn't. I, I'm, I'm kind of coming around to a place where I'm primarily identifying myself as a disciple of Yeshua. Because like, He called me to follow Him and I'm following Him. And I am practicing Torah not because of an ethnic background, not because of a community affiliation, not because I'm part of a movement. I'm doing the Torah because my rabbi did the Torah and I'm following him. So that's, that's, why, that's why I practice the Torah. So, um, here, here's, here's, here's an interesting thing that a lot of scholars are wrestling through right now in the academic community. What do we call the early church? Because Christianity as it is today wasn't something that was actually around in the first century. It was beginning to materialize a little bit in the second century, but Christianity, as we know it today as a world religion, only really crystallized and began to take form in the three and four hundreds when it became more of a state religion under Constantine and a lot of non-biblical elements were, were, were fused into that. So there's this big question scholars have. We can't really call that whatever it was that Yeshua started, we can't really call that Christianity because that's anachronistic. That's taking a term that we have today and shoving it into the first century in a way that it just doesn't fit. It's historically inconsistent. So what do we call, what do we call the thing that Yeshua started? And there's a growing movement in the academic community right now towards calling the thing that Yeshua started the Yeshua movement. And the reason for that is Yeshua didn't start a new religion. What Yeshua started for the first decade consisted only of Jewish people following him and maybe a handful of Gentiles. There was like Cornelius and there was a couple other people that heard about him, right? But it was, it was, it was a very Jewish thing and it happened in the context of the Jewish world and the Jewish paradigm. And, um, and it stayed that way for a long time in the sense of it being a movement that still fit in, under the broad, broad umbrella of Judaism and when I mean Judaism, I don't mean necessarily like a, a humanly devised world religion. I mean Judaism in the sense of a Bible-based faith. Judaism in the sense of a covenant relationship that a people have with a God. That's, kind of, that's the heart of Judaism, right? And so that, that, that's the term that's becoming more popular. What Yeshua started was the Yeshua movement. Maybe you could call it the Jesus movement also. And I, I'm really gravitating to that term. I like that term because that continues to be what we are today. We are a movement of people who are following Yeshua. And uh, as a result, we're also practicing the Torah. As a result, we're also encouraging Jews to stay Jews. As a result, we're also seeing that through faith in the Messiah of Israel, believers from the nations are brought into the covenants that make Israel Israel. These kinds of things, eh? So, let me ask you, how, how, how do you see yourself in that way? How do you see our community? How do you see the movement that we are a part of? I, I, would, I would suggest to you that, above all, we are a Yeshua community. I like the term Messianic, right? Yeah, we're Messianic. But that's not technically even a term that's used in the Scriptures. 
I mean, there are three times in the New Testament writings where the early believers are called Christians in the Greek. And if you read, let's say, the Aramaic version of the New Testament, it does basically use the term messianic, right, in that way. So yeah, I mean, we could say we're Christian or messianic, and it's, it's a linguistic thing depending on which language you're using, but... When you, that's three times that we're called that, whether you use the, the, the tag Christian or Messianic. When you look at how many times we are called disciples, Talmudim, we're called that hundreds and hundreds of times. So I suggest to you that we are primarily a movement of disciples of Yeshua, people who are following the Master in that way. That's me. So this story, I think, illustrates that concept really well. What does Moses represent? The Torah. Moses represents the Torah. The Torah was given through his hand. Did you notice that the father said, This is my dear son. Listen to him. And you couldn't even see Moses at that point. All you could see was Yeshua. I think there's a, there's a lesson there for us. Yes, the Torah is valid. It's a, it's a flag that we've been given to fly. And we're going to fly it high and free. And we're not going to go sit in the back of the bus anymore because we follow Torah. To use, the, 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 to use um, the whole story with Rosa Parks and the uh, American, American Civil Rights um, Movement. We're not going to go sit in the back of the bus anymore. We follow Yeshua. We do the stuff He did. We're not embarrassed of it. At the same time, though, are we primarily Torah people? No. This is my son. Listen to him. Uh, what would be another example? What does Elijah represent? Elijah, you know, you could say he represents the rest of the prophets. He was a very fiery man. Um, you know, he literally called down fire from heaven on um, several occasions. Uh, he was very, very charismatic. I think sometimes Elijah maybe could represent the Holy Spirit or the movement of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he could represent the charismatic world in general sometimes. I wonder if there isn't something there for us also. Like, I'm a conservative charismatic. I, I value the moving of the Holy Spirit. It's everything to me. To see Yeshua moving through His gifts in the midst of His body, it's like kisses from our bridegroom. You know, let's say when He manifests through a healing or through a tongue and then an interpretation or uh, through any of those giftings, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I've observed that sometimes we as human beings have a tendency to get really wowed by the charismata. We, we have a tendency to get really excited by the, quote, signs and wonders. And before you know it, we're kind of getting more excited about our experience than about Yeshua. And we get a little more, we're getting a little more jazzed by the, the supernatural stuff than we are about the Son of God. And I think sometimes maybe the Father is saying to us, this is my Son in your midst. Listen to Him. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy and the, and the Word says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Yeshua. So that's, that's the litmus test for spiritual manifestations. If it points to Yeshua, there's a good chance it's the real thing. If it distracts you from the Yeshua, stop and weigh it. Take a second look. Be careful. Because if, if it's a spirit that does not point you to Yeshua, the Son of God, of whom the Father said, This is my Son, listen to Him, it may be a counterfeit, or it may be a distraction. And uh, Shaul, uh, Paul, he, he wrote to uh, the Yeshua community in Corinth, I'm jealous for you, with a, with a God-like jealousy, because I saw you betrothed to Yeshua, and I want you to keep that pure devotion. Just keep a simple devotion to Him. Don't be like, I don't want you to be like Eve, 
who was enticed by the serpent. That's kind of the, the idea there. I'm paraphrasing, right? But that's, that's, a, that's a big thing that jumps out at me um, from this parasha. And I, 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 I want to grow with you in that too. Like, I, I want to grow in... Like, I have a relationship with the Master, and, and you do. And each of us are following Him. And each of us can really only follow Him for ourselves. We can't just do, go along with the crowd. We can't just do stuff that the people around us are doing, even if it be our, let's say, a friend or a spouse or whoever. It has to be your thing with the Master, you listening to Him. And I, I want to grow in that with you. I want to grow in just being like, how has your following been this week? How has it been with you and Yeshua this week? What has He taught you? What have you heard from Him? I, I want to I grow together in that. I don't know. What do you guys think? Can we, can we kind of move in that direction? That'd be fun, yeah. That's something in my heart. So that's something that I, I get from this parsha. Uh, I want to share with you also something from the story that we read in the Torah about uh, Yaakov. And so in this story, he, he and his clan are facing an existential crisis or threat. They don't know if they're even going to make it another day before they're all like slaughtered on the ground and, um, and it's over. And um, you know the story, right? He's coming back home to the land of Israel, to his father Isaac. He hears Esau's coming with 400 guys. And um, Yaakov, rightly so, is really alarmed. So, you know, he's... he's He's like forming all of these plans and he has all these strategies and he's implementing them all. And uh, then the last thing that happens is he was, he's wrestling through the night, right? And I don't know how much I can draw of this, but we'll try to draw something just to, to have a picture of Yaakov wrestling. So here's uh, Yaakov. And uh, how do you draw people wrestling? He's got this guy around the neck. How about that? And this guy's... I don't know. What should we draw for a face on this guy? It was nighttime, so you couldn't see. So we'll just draw a black, okay? There. And actually, the Hebrew word there for wrestling is the word for dust. They were dusting. So it has the idea of like, they were... Well, I'm, you've seen people wrestle. You've seen little boys wrestle, right? You don't stay on your feet. You're on the ground and you're rolling around, up and down and all over the place. And that's what they were doing. They were wrestling. Um, and let's see, here's the, here's the yardane over here. And then here's the, I don't, I don't know if they crossed the Jordan, but anyway. And then we'll say here's Esau over here, and he's coming. He's a really hairy guy, so we'll draw some serious hair on this guy. There, all the way down. He's got a sword. It says that he and his guys all had swords, all 400 of them. That, that can be scary. That would be like being like, yeah, your brother's coming with 400 guys and they've all got shotguns. <laughs> like, uh-oh, why are they bringing their firearms with them for our family reunion? And why are there 400 guys coming with Esau to our family reunion? This, and, you know, after knowing that he had a grudge and he was going to kill me, this might not turn out very well. So there's, that's the story there. And um, it was through that crisis, and it was through Yaakov like, wrestling all night, that some significant things happened that made us as a people who we are, that gave us the name Israel. And um, there's, there's a variety of opinions about who the guy was that Jacob was wrestling. There's this one opinion in, in the Jewish world that um, it was actually like Esau's angel. 
He was wrestling with Esau's angel. Um, however, when you read the story, I think he was wrestling with, with God, with Elohim, because in the morning he said, I've seen God face to face and I'm alive. That doesn't sound like Esau's angel to me. Um, also, this guy gave Jacob a new name, and that's what our whole nation is named after. It would be a little troubling if Esau's angel was the one who gave us the name Israel. I'd be like, ouch. Why don't you just let the Palestinians name, name the nation of Israel today for that matter? Like, it doesn't sound very much different almost. So I, I, w- I, would, I, would just, I would tend towards the conclusion that Jacob was actually wrestling with God. And this is one of those stories that like, totally doesn't fit in my paradigm, quite frankly. I mean, what, why? Why did God even come to Jacob in the first place tangibly like that? Um, how did the wrestling match start? Really, like, who was the first one to, to reach out and grab? Was Jacob trying to throw... Did Jacob, did Jacob feel this person close by and just freak out and, th- and, and, and lash out and throw him on the ground? Was he trying to protect himself? I mean, at some point, I think Jacob realized this wasn't... Who was this guy? I don't know. There are a lot of questions this story raises. But by the end of the night, Jacob realized this is God because he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And um, he got a new name as a result. This is your God. Like, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine a God who invites you to step into the boxing ring to, like, have it out face to face. It's hard to imagine a God who's, like, into, into, like, having UFC bout with you, like an ultimate fighting championship, like a cage fighting God. Really. But think about it. God initiated a wrestling match with Jacob and it lasted all night long. And Jacob like walked away from that physically maimed. He had a he had a limp for the rest of his life. And he didn't give up either. I mean seriously, if I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is God." I'd be like, "Just go totally limp. Hope he doesn't kill ya and just do the faith thing and be like, "Okay, God, it's you. Do whatever you want." You know, really? But there was something about Jacob that was like, I need your blessing. He was so desperate. He was so tenacious. And like, this is your forefather in the faith. This is the guy that you as a nation are named after. A guy that was so tenacious and so desperate that he wouldn't like hold of God himself and say, God, I'm going to hold on to you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to wrestle this thing through until you bless me. Like, that's how badly I want it. Wow. Frankly, like, uh, what, what's, your, what's your first reaction? Let's say when you hit a crisis in your life. Let's say when you hit some trouble in a relationship. Is your first response to engage and to be tenacious and to be like, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to see this thing through. Or when you're praying. Let's say, uh, I'll give you an example. Like, Genevieve and Teresa and I were all sick this week. Alright? And I prayed, just like Yeshua said, and lay hands on my daughter and laid hands on my wife. And nothing happened that I could see. And I prayed for a couple of days, several times. My response is to get discouraged and to give up or to get mad at Yeshua because he's not coming through for me or any one of a number of things. But quite frankly, my first response is not to be like, I'm going to lock in and I'm going to, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to wrestle this thing through until I see the results. That's not my first response, right? And I was talking with a buddy of mine whose family was sick with a fever the last couple of weeks and he said, yeah, that wasn't my first response either because he anointed them, he prayed for them, and nothing happened. And I think his words were he, he, chewed, 
he chewed God out over it, and then and then the father had some words with him the next day about things. But um, that's that's more our first response. Our, our our response is like to give up, to get discouraged, or to to get mad and place the blame. And it, it doesn't matter if it's our relationship with the father or our relationship with other people. You hit trouble, you hit rough spots, and those are our responses. And um, yeah, that, that's a challenge for us. I, I wonder, like, how many how many of us have had places in our walk with Yeshua where we hit a rough spot and we just gave up. We just like um, you just go belly up. You know, you just. To, metaphorically speaking, you go to the belly up pub and grill here in Prince Albert. You, you've all seen it, right? You just go belly up. You go and be like, I'm just going to have five beers and just forget about everything. For a lot of people, that is their response. I think often alco- alcoholism springs from that approach. It's like, life is too hard. There's a dark night. I'm in a crisis. I'm just going to go belly up and go to the belly up. And I, so maybe, maybe that happens with us in different ways. That happens with me in relationships. Let's say in my marriage, I'm hitting some hard times. There's stuff that we need to work through or persevere through. My first response is, I am such a wimp. I'm seriously such a wimp. I just, I just like automatically, I have like the oh, woe is me syndrome, right? Just go belly up and feel and, and wallow in my self pity and um, poor me. No, poor me. Or, 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 or just, you know, instead of wrestling through the thing in a good, positive way for the Father's blessing or maybe in prayer, I'll just point fingers and blame, right? And of course, I'll never point the finger at myself or blame myself. So I can see how there are lots of ways that. I don't know, I, it's like the opposite of pulling a Jacob. And that's true in any relationship, eh? Like, that's true in, let's say, in community relationships. Really, in community, if someone really ticks you off, or consistently does something that you don't like, or has what to you are glaring character flaws, how many of us, like, pray for that person, engage with that person, do what we can to resolve things and have a better relationship? It's way easier to ignore it. That's usually what we do as good Canadians. We just ignore it, right? Because if you ignore the problem, it always goes away, right? Um, Or we just leave and go to another community where we will eventually encounter more people that push our buttons and bug us and that aren't spiritual enough and that have problems, etc., etc. Kind of a vicious cycle. And I mean, that's my tendency. It's totally my tendency. It's, it's like, I think that's something that's rampant in the body of Messiah in, in a lot of churches, you know. We're in a, I'm in a church and these people are doing stuff that I don't like. So instead of like engaging, instead of wrestling through it, instead of seeking the Father's blessing, I'm just going to walk off. You know? It's crazy. Actually, I was going to talk about this a little later, but let's just look at it now. Um, Yeshua actually talked about that. This is, this is awesome. Like, because we're human beings, and because we're all messed up, and we're all on a journey to healing, and towards like becoming more like Yeshua, and growing in shalom and our relationships and things, we all rub on each other, and they're ecstatic. And I will sin against you at times. And you will sin against me. And if you are married, your partner will sin against you. I was listening to a pastor a couple weeks ago who said in marriage counseling, you need to tell the people who are getting married, your partner will sin against you. What are you going to do about it? What's your plan? Because most people when they enter into marriage have no plan for what to do when they sin against each other. And thankfully, Yeshua, Yeshua covered that. It's really let, let's, let's look at that for a second in Matthew chapter uh, 7, Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, 
And some manuscripts say, if your brother sins against you, this is what you do. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Ha <laughs> ha! But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the community. And if he refuses to listen even to the community, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, there's one you totally have to read in context, because we have Gentiles all around us, and we get along pretty good with Gentiles. I, 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 uh... <laughs> but you have to, you know, of course, looking at how Jewish people would relate to Gentiles. Okay, so let's just take note of a couple things here. If you see a brother or sister in your faith community, and they're doing something stupid in the sense of sinning, uh, whether it be wronging you or just doing something wrong in general, what it doesn't say is ignore it or walk away. That's our first tendency. It says actually engage. Go to the person in private. So have a private conversation, right? Um, it's best to do that in person. Don't do it via email. Please never do that via email. I have done that, and it was one of the stupidest things I ever did in my life. And I've learned the hard way. Do not do conflict resolution via email. Um, go to the person. And um, show him his fault in, in private, right? Private meeting. And uh, the objective is, you know, if, if, he, if the person hears you out, great, you won your brother, you win. And if not, sometimes did you notice in interpersonal um, relations, it's like, you said this, no, I didn't say that. Well, you actually, and it's kind of like there are two different histories running parallel to each other, and maybe both of them are kind of true, but neither of them are totally true. Yeshua said, you know, that's the point where you want to involve another couple people so they can be like a living record and be like, this is what you actually said, and that kind of thing, right? And then if you still can't resolve stuff, sin issues specifically, then you take it to the community, and the community can help you out with that. Um, you know, that's the last resort. You don't want that to happen any more than you have to because most communities don't want to be like, a, you know, referee, refereeing um, stuff any more than they have to. So that's, that's what Yeshua has to say about... Um, interpersonal relations and uh, conflict resolution on that matter. I'll, um, I'm going to read you a little story. Back to the whole wrestling with God thing. Uh, this is from the book Megashift by James Rutz. Uh, he's a well-known uh, house church author. I actually, I think I want to do a book study with us as a community through this book because it's very, very powerful. The first uh, couple of chapters, he just gives like story after story after story of what, 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 what the Father is doing around the world. Like supernatural stuff, like multiple documented cases of people being raised from the dead, for instance. Some of them after being dead for four to seven days. Um, here's, here's a story from um, David Yonggi Cho. How many of you know who David Yonggi Cho is? He, he leads a huge community of followers of Yeshua in Korea. Um, it's famous for being the biggest church in the world. And they're based on small groups that gather in homes and things. And I'll just read this to you. He's a, he's a very well-respected man. He's credible. He's a man of great integrity. So I, I think you can take this story as being true. In 1974, 30 children died after eating contaminated food from a street vendor in Seoul, Korea. On that day, David Yonggi Cho, famed pastor of the world's largest church there, was in an elders' meeting when he received an urgent call to go home. 
On arrival, he found Samuel, his five-year-old son, dying. Cho later declared, I simply did not want to accept the death of my son. But after hours of intense praying and crying, he died anyway. I was beside myself. I had to watch him grow cold and stiff. Yet I couldn't give up. I told God, I will not leave this room until you give me my son back. Cho prayed and praised God till after midnight. Finally, he stood and thundered, Samuel! He clapped his hands loudly. Samuel, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the boy sprang to his feet. There's more. Samuel told his father that he had met Jesus in heaven and that he had seen many deceased Christians from Cho's church there who shouted, Look, here comes the pastor's son. Then Jesus told the boy, I cannot keep you here because your father will not let you go. So I'm taking you back to him. Samuel is now president of a computer company. That's a true story. David Yonggi Cho's son died, and he prayed for hours. Before his son died, and after his son died. And he didn't give up. He said to God, I won't leave this room until you give me my son back. He wrestled literally through the night. And he said, I'm not going to let you go. And his son was already in... I don't understand spiritual stuff, okay? But his son says he was already in heaven with Jesus. He saw people who had died from their church there. They recognized him. Oh, it's the pastor's son. And they reached a point where Yeshua told his son, I can't keep you here because your father won't let you go. So I'm taking you back to him. You know what? That, that, that story squares with this account. Yeshua is the God who wrestled with Jacob all night long. Yeshua is the God who let Jacob wrestle all night long. He could have just blessed him at the very beginning. He could have just given him a new name. He could have been like, Jacob, it's going to be okay. You know, go to bed, get a good sleep. And in the morning you'll see Esau and he'll kiss you. No, he he let him wrestle with him all night long. Sometimes I wonder if Yeshua isn't just like, come on, like, show me what you've got. I want you to come in and like, engage with me. I want you to... Tell me what you want me to do for you. Do you really want that? Or are you just going to give up? Are you just going to go belly up? Are you just going to get mad and start pointing fingers at me? Um, that's a story that really hits me hard. I, you know what? Just on a personal level, I shared with you, like even getting sick, my theology doesn't... Act, I don't have room in my theology to be sick, quite frankly. Because... Of who my God is. My God is a healer. And when Yeshua came and people would come to him in faith, it doesn't say that Yeshua turned some of them away saying, It isn't God's will to heal you. Sorry. Yeah, you know, you over here, sorry, it just isn't God's will. He never said that. Everyone who came to Yeshua in faith, it says, He healed them. Everybody. And it says that about, that about the apostles in Acts too. It doesn't say selectively, eh? And I mean, you, you look at the covenant provision. Yahweh said, you know, if you walk with me, if you, if you keep my laws, if you listen to my voice, I will, I, will, I will like remove all of the diseases of Egypt from you because I'm your healer. And, and that's, that's my God. And I believe that about him. And I believe that regardless of my performance in every area of my life, the, the righteousness of Mashiach has been merited to me. And so... All of the promises of God are yes and amen to me through Yeshua and my faith in Him, not always based necessarily on my perfect observance or my performance or whatever, although, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best to wholeheartedly follow the Father. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my paradigm. 
And so, quite frankly, my whole family getting sick, like, it doesn't, it doesn't fit my paradigm. And so I've really been wrestling with this, you know? Is the breakdown on my side or on his side? It would be easier to just be like, he's just not coming through for me. My God's a failure, you know? He doesn't love me. He's not, maybe he's not good enough. Maybe he's not very powerful. I don't know. No, I have to... For me personally, this is what I'm thinking through. The breakdown is on my side. There's more, there's more to him than what I have known. There's more to the power of his spirit than what I am living in. And um, so part of my journey right now is really pursuing Yeshua to be, uh, to be like Stephen. It says he was full of God's power. You know, what does it look like for me to be full of God's power? To be full of grace, to be full of faith. I'm not full of his power. That's for sure. Lay hands on my daughter, pray for her a couple times, and nothing happens. She still has a fever and she's still miserable. That, that breaks my heart. But in a good way. Like, it makes me be like, uh, so like for me right now, in my personal prayer times, I'm really laying hold of the Father, and I'm saying, I know there's more to your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to let go of this until you take me there. And if you have to change me, and if you have to break me, whatever you have to do, do it. But I'm not going to let go on this one. I want the blessing of the fullness of your Spirit, and, and the power to live on the level that Yeshua lived on. You know, he said, the works that I've done, those who believe in me are going to do those things, and greater things. Like, I'm not even doing most of the stuff Yeshua did. Never mind greater things, eh? It tells me there's so much more. So, that's a little area in my, my life where I'm wrestling, where I'm not letting go. And, and I, I, I ask you, what are the areas where you are wrestling, where you are not letting go? Whether it be for yourself, or for your family, or for a relationship, or for your city, or your country. You can wrestle for your country. You can wrestle for your city. You don't have to let go. Hold on to Him. Yeshua likes that. He wants you to do that. Maybe He's almost picking a fight with you today. You know what I mean? In a good way. Maybe He wants you to step into the ring with Him and put on your gloves and and have at it in a loving and faithful way. Maybe there's a place for that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.